Hello, and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Lucas Stock. And my name is Jens Nelson. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Real quick, before we do any... I mean, anything for today's episode, a quick little housekeeping note that we we did want to bring up. Jens, you wanted to say something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just want to get this out of the way right before we begin. For sure. Just wanted to let you guys know. So we, Lucas and I have been trying a new recording software. Um, we, we've mentioned this before, but a peek behind the curtain. Uh, the way that we typically record is we each record our own separate audio tracks and then we piece that back together in post-production, and it makes a one seamless, you know, audio file. Um, but to, to sort of make things easier, being that we're in two different places, I'm in Wisconsin, Lucas is in Alabama, um, we tried using a software that would record one audio track of both of our voices, and because it's doing it over the internet, and just, we both live in apartments, sometimes internet spotty, and it comes in and out, and so you might have noticed over the last couple of episodes um, some drops in audio quality where our voices sounded kind of like robotic or they cut out and words were intelligible. Um, so basically, we're back to our old way. We're going to do this until we can figure out a better solution because, one, this gives us, I think, our, our best audio quality because we're recording directly into GarageBand for Lucas and... Um, Man, what do I, I always forget what the Adobe Adobe Audition? I use Audition to record, so uh, it gives us a pretty, pretty, pretty good sounding audio. And two, because there's no internet connection required, it's it's not choppy. There's not those little blips. So um, all that to say, we we appreciate the feedback. We appreciate that you guys are uh, keeping us honest, and uh, we do apologize for for some of the the drops in quality. So. Hopefully, going forward, those won't be an issue. So that's my little soapbox. Again, we appreciate the feedback, and we are, uh, like I said, back on track. So, Lucas, why don't you introduce this very exciting episode? Yeah, so we are continuing October 2021, our second annual Nothing But Heresy Spooky Spectacular, um, or whatever else you want to call it. And today, we are going to be talking about a topic that is... I'm pretty jazzed about. I'm glad we're doing this one. It's there's it's it's really interesting, especially in comparison to a lot of the other topics that we've covered both last October and so far this year, just in terms of the we've covered a lot of the big name heresies, right? We've covered the Arianisms and the Nestorianisms and We've covered a lot of the big-name heretics on our Heretics of History segments. And in some sense, you might hear today's topic and think, wow, you're really scratching the, the bottom of the barrel. And you might be right. I guess we'll have to see how this episode goes and and how we go from here. I was, I was joking around the other day. I'm not sure. Like, I want to do this every year, but I'm realizing we might run out. We might have to stop just because, like... It seems kind of unlikely to, to think that we, we'd run out of heresies, but in terms of, like, stuff that has enough information available that we can actually dive into it and construct some sort of, you know, sharing of the story I, of I guess we have to, like, create new heresy and <laughs> let, that, let that be condemned, yeah, that, that, right? That shouldn't be too hard. Send in your heretical takes. Yeah, and we'll make Doxology sure to share it. Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so it's a little bit different. It's a little bit of a more well, not a little bit. I think it's definitely a much more nuanced topic than something like Arianism or something like um, you know the what did we do last year? I'm trying to think of some good ones we did last we year. We did Christological um, heresies, uh, Word mm-hmm. of Faith, and mm-hmm. Latter-day Saints last year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this one is part of what I think, we'll, we'll get into why it's, it, well, obviously what it is and then why it is so so complicated. So, so instead of beating around the bush, we'll just start. So we're talking about uh, monothelitism, the monothelite heresy, obviously, clearly words that we use every day uh, and you know there's no need to explain what we mean so um, this comes from like a lot of these heresies like a lot of just theological terminology in general it comes from the Greek so you, you may know mono meaning one and what you probably wouldn't know um, or, or at least less people would probably know um, the the theletism part comes from the Greek word for will so thelema is is one of the greek word main greek words for will it, it's it's in the new testament a bunch and and just that's the greek word for it so one will the the doctrine of one will so this is another christological heresy so we didn't talk about it last year um you just mentioned we talked about christological heresies but it wasn't one of the ones we covered this is a later one so a lot of the big sort of debates that happen around christology where we get terms and ideas like Apollinarianism and Nestorianism, the Council of Chalcedon, the the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Those are sort of the big main, you know, a lot of times they're referred to that that period is referred to as the Christological controversy, right? But after the Council of Chalcedon, things didn't just get fixed in terms of disagreements in the church, uh, in terms of different ways of explaining Jesus's incarnation and the nature or the the way that he existed as the incarnate word these these conversations continued both in terms of people who rejected chalcedon and and were just outright heretics as well as people who maybe didn't like what chalcedon was doing but also you know definitely weren't full-on apollinarians or nestorians like there's like anything in history and especially in theological history there's a lot of of complicated and nuanced factors going on but this is the this is sort of background to what would eventually become um, the subject of an ecumenical council. So the Council of Chalcedon was the fourth ecumenical council in, in uh, 451 AD. The, the question of monothelitism is addressed at the sixth ecumenical council, which was Constantinople III? Yeah, the third council of Constantinople. Um, which was the sixth ecumenical council in in six, six eighty to six eighty one is when that council met. So we're 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 a couple hundred years later. So it's sort of downstream from from the Nestorian debates and and people like Cyril of Alexandria and those those questions, and it's on in one sense very straightforward. It's in the name. It's the idea that Jesus had one will. Um, and so if we're talking about like a very basic definition, it, it, it kind of is that simple, right? What that means <laughs> is is not simple at all. Uh, and, and well, I mean, simple might be not the best word. It's not it's not easily grasped, I think, 
because of, and I, this would be my argument based on the research I did. I think the reason that this is, this is as, as will quickly become apparent, a fairly difficult thing to explain and to wrap our heads around is I think it primarily comes down to our vocabulary and our philo- philosophical concepts that we're just kind of, the categories we're working with as, you know, uh, late modern, post-Enlightenment, Western, you know, English-German kind of philosophical context, if, if, if those are some of the big themes and backgrounds to, to the way that we think and live in the world, compared to the not totally different, but the very culturally and linguistically and philosophically different world of 6th and 7th century Byzantine Empire with Greek, you know, Hellenistic philosophical categories and and vocabulary. That, I'll explain more what I mean later on about why I think that's at the heart of a lot of what makes this such a challenging thing to, to talk through. But I think that it's it's in the general. Keep in mind that that it's as straightforward as the doctrine that Jesus had one will, and this was condemned at an ecumenical council, which is why we're counting it as a heresy. That's the 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 you know spark notes version, and then what we're gonna get into is a lot of the weeds of what does this mean? Why is this a big deal? you know do i care about it should we care about it like why why would we even have this debate <laughs> what does it even mean to say that jesus had one will or two wills or like and this is where a lot of those questions come in so that's sort of my you know as usual long-winded <laughs> like background intro thoughts that i wanted to say at the outset yeah um I want to stop here for any other sort of background intro stuff at the outset to set the context for the rest of our conversation. Like, you know, anything I missed, anything you found, anything that any thoughts you had preparing, anything you wanted to add here. Yeah, I'll just say that, you know, as you've already so well described, we've already gone through a couple of heresies, right? The church had already been going through, uh, working through scriptural, um, historical, you know, church father teaching. And, you know, some regions of the church were still still struggling. They were, there was some confusion uh, really over the nature of Christ. Um, because although, again, although we've already determined that Jesus is God, he's the, he's the son of God, um, to some, his exact nature remained open to debate. Uh, because the, the church has already declared that it's heretical that, you know, Jesus is not fully divine. We're, we're, we believe that Jesus is fully God, fully man. We determined that at First Council of Nicaea um, during the debates of Arianism. Um, but however, um, in arguing that he is both God and man, there sort of emerged a dispute over exactly how the human and divine natures of Christ actually exist within his person. So as fully God and fully man... Um, does he have two wills? Does he have one? So does he have just one unified will in his God manhood, uh, or does he have a human will and a divine will? Uh, and so that's that's really like the heart of of this controversy. So the the people who taught uh, monothelitism they were they were seeking to, I, I guess, understand 
that nature, the, the nature of, of Christ's very will. Um, and as we're going to come to find out, uh, this is very <laughs> convoluted, very complex. There, It's not just some guy somewhere who's trying to, to teach something. Um, there, there are a lot of people at play. Uh, so it's hard to even narrow down, as we'll learn on Friday, like there isn't necessarily one person associated with this heresy like there would be for Arianism. Uh, this is this is something that's a little bit more uh, fuzzy, a little bit more dark and twisty. Um, but the the big players are big people. I mean, we're talking about popes and emperors and uh, bishops and people like that. We're not just talking about little guys out in the desert somewhere teaching some strange teaching. Uh, we're talking about some of the like heads of the church. So. I don't know. That's sort of like what what I was going to say at the outset. So maybe now it's time that we start trying to go deeper into these woods and, and really make sense yeah. of what was going on. Yeah. So before we can talk about monothelitism, we have to address kind of two things. One is a whole different doctrine called monenergism, which we'll get to in a second. And the other thing is that I want that I want to point out is the the ways that this controversy is more political than the other heretical debates and controversies that we've talked about before. It's not that po- like it's not that that the the political aspects of things like Chalcedon were unimportant. That's that's not not what I'm saying. But this had a little bit more of an like specifically political root compared to some other theological debates that that led to things being declared heretical. So as we know, following the Council of Chalcedon, there was a split in the church, the first real split in the church. And um, in an effort to kind of bridge that gap and form some kind of compromise between those who accepted uh, the decrees of Chalcedon and those who rejected them, there was um, this guy, Kairos of Alexandria. Basically, he came up with this idea to to try and reunite the church, which sounds great, and it is great. Um, the political aspect comes in with the his desire to to, and not just his, but he's kind of he's he's a major figure. This desire to reunite the church in order to help strengthen the eastern half of the empire, which at this stage is under a lot of pressure from the Persians. Um, in terms of military pressure, like that, that kind of pressure, and a united church would 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 help the empire be more united to help withstand foreign powers invading or putting other sorts of threats to them. So that's sort of the the political side of it, and the cynical way to read that is that there were you know nobody cared about the theology; they were just trying to like secure power. That's not what what I'm trying to say. That's not what we're trying to say, um, but. In light of this, you know, imperial threat, there is this renewed and urgent effort to reunite the two sides of the church that had that had been separated since Chalcedon, right? And the way that he tries to do this is he, and he actually gets people to sign it at first, but he, he comes up with this pact of union, which was basically a, just a straight up compromise where Everybody would agree, if, if they were going to sign on to this, they would agree to accept Chalcedon, which, which you know, as a bit of a refresher, to accept the idea that Christ was one person and two integral natures, 
and they wanted to add in a, quote, clarification that there was only a single, now this is important, divine human activity, all right? Um, Which they got that term, divine human activity, from a misquote of of, um, a Greek phrase, the theandrike energia, so energia, where we get our word energy. Um, There was a single theandrike, divine human, theos, um, andros is divine, God, man, a single divine human activity or what we can also in English say energy. So this led to mon energism, one energy. This was immediately opposed. So then there was a clarification of mon energism, which was originally conceived as a clarification of Chalcedon. All right, so stay with me. (laughs) Um, And that clarification is what we call monothelitism, one will. One person with two natures, but a single divine will, right? So that's sort of the theological, political, historical, you know, uh, genealogy of monothelitism. Before we dive into that, I think it's important to take a little bit of a sidebar here and clarify what the heck a will is. Because we've been saying, does Christ have two wills? Does he have one will? Great questions. But what is a will, right? And this is where I think there's a big disconnect. There was a big disconnect for me that I think in my research was kind of clarified, which is why I wanted to make a big deal about this. It is not maybe as straightforward as it might first appear to try and talk about one will or two wills, right? So what a will is, is it's it's interesting because there's not like a monothelite like manifesto somewhere where what they are affirming is, you know, written down A, B, C, D and explained thoroughly in a book somewhere that we can just work through and figure out exactly what they mean by will and all that kind of stuff. That, that doesn't really exist. But what we do have is a ton of writing against monothelitism from St. Maximus the Confessor, who is sort of like the key opponent. Um, you know, like Nestorius's key opponent is Cyril. Monothelitism's key opponent is Maximus, right? And Maximus makes a distinction and a, a definition of, of what it means to will something that I think is extremely important and that we, I don't think we can understand this topic without working through this. And we can maybe have some time to discuss, is this a good definition? Is this a helpful definition? You know, But certainly in terms of just understanding what's going on, I think we have to understand from the perspective of the people who were involved in the debate. So at the very least, here is one of the main characters in this debate's view, right? So will, willing, is a natural, and that word is very, it doesn't just mean normal, like think about it, natural. It's, a, it's, it's part of our nature. It's a natural characteristic of humanity. So oh, the will is the natural desire of a rational creature. That's what Maximus calls the natural will. So I am hungry. My body 
myself naturally desires to obtain nutrition by eating food because I'm hungry, right? That is that is part of what it means to be a human, and and uh, that's a very like physical, you know, irrational sort of sort of thing, like with, like the passions. But but this this is this is beyond that that as well. My natural desire is to. I have a natural desire for God, right? We see this in Romans 1. We see this in Ecclesiastes. There's this, this, this general revelation that, that gives me this natural desire to draw close to God. I don't, I, you know, that's intrinsic to who I am. It's part of my nature. That's the natural will. But there's this other aspect of what it means to will something which I think is closer to what we as modern people might tend to define the will as, which is there's when we're confronted with two or more moral choices, two or more options to make a moral choice, we, we go through this process of deliver, de, deliberation, right? So, you know, an opportunity arises for me to buy, a you know, go to the gas station and I want a candy bar, I have the opportunity because the cashier isn't looking to just steal the candy bar or to take it up and buy it like I should. And so there's there's a moment, and you know, hopefully for most of us this is a very short moment if we even think about it at all, but there's a moment where I go through a process of deliberation where I decide what am I going to choose, right? And I, and I might say, oh, you know, I don't want to spend the money. It's, it's, it saves me time and money and it gets me what I want. Uh, I'm just going to steal it. Or, you know, oh, I know that stealing is wrong. That breaks God's law. It might also get me in trouble with, with the human law of where I live. And, uh, you know, I want to live like Christ, you know, and so I'm not going to steal it. I go through this process of deliberation between these two different choices in regards to a moral question. Maximus says that that process of deliberation is a result of the fall. So before the fall, we, we, didn't, we wouldn't be going through this question of deliberating what the proper natural desire was. Because, because pre-fall, we were in perfect communion with God in the garden. So we didn't have this, this question of what's the right choice. And obviously, steal a candy bar, don't steal a candy bar. For those of us who are familiar with God's word, it's very obvious what the proper um, answer to that is. But for people who don't know God's word or in more complicated sort of gray area questions, we we need to deliberate. That's why there's the whole field of, of, of ethics and, and moral theology is because there are questions that we have to figure out. Do our natural desires, you know, do they play out in the world in accordance with God's will and law. And and that is a result of the fall. And for Maximus, if we say that Christ had a human will, and we say that he was going through this post-fall moral deliberation, he, he, you know, because Jesus is fully God as well as fully man, that would be a problem, Maximus says. So he calls this proper, this, this process of deliberation the gnomic will. So we have the natural will, which is just the natural desire of a rational creature. We have the gnomic will. Um, gnomic, like not like a garden gnome, but like gnosis. Think of Gnosticism, um, the, the Greek word for knowledge. And that gnomic will, he would say, Christ did not have that. 
the way we do. Christ had a natural human will as well as a natural divine will because he is fully human and actually human and he's fully God and actually God. But he didn't have a gnomic will. He didn't have this moral uncertainty, right? And for Maximus, this isn't like a contradiction because he says that the gnomic will is not actually part of human nature. So we're not like limiting Christ's human nature and therefore saying that Christ's human nature was only like 90% there or like it was kind of mostly a human nature or it was sort of like us, right? Um, but he's saying that, no, he has a full and in, you know integral, the integrity of Christ's human nature is not compromised because the gnomic will doesn't exist as an essential part of our nature. So why am I going through all of this? It's because what do we mean by will? Right. This is this is part of Maximus's argument against the monothelites, because he's saying if we say that Jesus didn't have he only had one will, he didn't have a human will, he had a divine will. He says that the incarnation is actually jeopardized. It's actually undermining the incarnation and therefore our salvation if we say that Christ didn't have a human will. And maybe we're motivated to say that because we don't want to say that he was confused and uncertain about what the proper moral desire and course of action was, which I would agree, you know, for someone who's fully and perfectly God, we don't want to say he had to deliberate how to do God's will, what God's will was to, to live out. No, but if we, if, if in an effort to avoid that, we start saying he didn't have a human will. Well, John of Damascus later would actually say that the, mono, the Monothelites are basically just Apollinarians, where Apollinarius didn't have um, a human soul. He said that the Logos took the place of the human soul, and therefore he didn't have a full human nature and therefore undermined the incarnation. John of Damascus is going to say, well, you're basically doing the same thing because if you're a Monothelite, you're saying he didn't have a human will. And again, this human will is part of the human nature, this natural desire that we have as rational, as rational creatures, which, interestingly, sidebar, and I'm going to shut up for a while, we, we might need to do another episode on this. I think that that understanding of what, a, what the will is sheds a lot of light into questions of quote-unquote free will or the bondage of the will. If the will is my ability to make two choices, it is my ability to, to make a choice and then, you know, do an action that fulfills that choice, it's kind of a difficult thing to say, oh, well, we don't have free will, right? My, my will is bound. Oh, you're saying that, that, that everything's just predetermined. I have no free will. Like, usually when we, when we talk about will, we're talking about these kinds of questions of, you know, oh, do we just, are we just puppets or robots or do we actually have like moral agency? Well, this is what's really interesting to me is like, that's not the framework that's going on here, um, which is, which is a totally different discussion that we don't, we, we, we shouldn't have here. But it is interesting in light of later, especially Western and Reformation debates, and then especially, uh, you know, Protestant arguments that go on today about free will or, or not free will. Um, but, but keep in mind that when we're talking about the monothelites saying that Jesus had one will, they're talking about this, this, this 
what we might call, I don't I mean this might be a little inaccurate, but we might call it a more a more, you know, classical Greek understanding of the will rather than what we might think of as the will, where we're not just talking about this ability to make decisions or this ability to to make choices, but we're talking about this 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 natural as in part of our nature desiring that goes on. And we can see I th- you know how this plays into questions of like the bondage of the will is it's not hard to see how our natural desires are warped and are bound by sin. That's a conversation for a different day. But it's a really this is this is the question. It, it, it's it's similar to Nestorianism where we're talking about what what is what does the incarnation mean? And when we start coming to these conclusions, what are the implications for the incarnation? Are we threatening the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man? And the argument that Maximus is going to make is that we are threatening the incarnation if we say that he doesn't have a, a, a human will, a, the natural will that is part of humanity because he's really human. So that's the question. Those are the stakes. And that is, I think, some dense and difficult but important philosophical background in terms of what we're talking about when we say will. Like I said, I'm going to shut up now. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I don't necessarily know how to uh, to bridge this gap. Um, I guess I, I really like the direction that you've taken this conversation because I, I simply approached it as giving the facts of monothelitism as far as like where it originated you know how it progressed and then sort of eventually later how it was condemned as a heresy and perhaps quote-unquote died Um, but you've brought up this really interesting conversation that every episode we've had so far in this series we've been like maybe this (laughs) garners further conversation uh, which is great Um, but I guess the the best thing to probably do is to to bring it back to the heresy bring it back to the the teaching here um to try to make sense of 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 this, why why did it progress? How did it progress? Uh, and then why why and when it was condemned? Um, so I'm just going to try to give like some dates, I guess, give some some background, um, as we've already sort of said, but just to to reiterate, the controversy originated in the attempts uh, by the Byzantine emperor uh, Heraclius to win back the church and the empire. Um, So he, he he's the emperor. He is sort of like buddies with this guy who we're going to talk about on Friday, Sergius, who's the patriarch of Constantinople. Um, he's a strong upholder of this doctrine. Um, and he was even like an advisor to the emperor. So again, we're, we're talking about politics. Um, in, in about 638, there was this ecthesis, I think is how you'd say it, this, this almost like statement of faith, um, which formulated the position. Um, and so this actually led to some intense controversy that Heraclius's successor, Constans II, um, had to issue an edict basically forbidding all discussion on the question. So as this teaching grows, as, as it becomes um, a formalized belief, uh, there are people in higher positions that are having problems with it. So it's not like this like set a wildfire that suddenly the church was dealing with this massive problem. Um, but basically, 
later, sometime in the 660s maybe, when Constantine IV became emperor, the controversy was revived. Um, and so the new emperor summoned like a general council, which met at Constantinople. Um, so I don't know. All, all of this just like gets so convoluted. It's so hard to look back into history from time to time to, to sort of make sense of the details. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm curious if you have any interjections here regarding some of these finer details, some of these dates. Um, because like you said, we, we don't have a ton of surviving literature. We don't have a ton of um, other than like the facts of history. Uh, and, and some of, I guess, what, what Maximus has said to further this conversation from like a here's what it was. I, I, I'm curious if you have more to add. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, too, that part like this originated as an attempt to clarify something. It, it didn't just it didn't just come out of someone's teaching the way Arianism did the way. Nestorianism did the the questions that it was answering it, it like it was answering different questions in a different way right it wasn't trying to answer one of these fundamental questions who is Jesus you know what is the incarnation right and then coming out and answering in a way that is that is contradicting to to uh, the the revelation of God in Scripture and and the tradition of the church the way that someone like Nestorius was but it was answering questions of how can we you know, it, it was trying to answer questions of how can we clarify Chalcedon in a way that makes it easier to reunite everybody. And which I think is part of the reason why this isn't named after a person, right? And, and there isn't just this one dude that we could point to that everybody was arguing with. Because it, it is very, very different. And I think that there's an, there's an element where I, I, I agree with Constantinople III condemning it i agree with maximus being concerned about it enough to spend a lot of energy i mean his this is probably a a story for christians of history some week sometime in the future but he he's maximus the confessor because he was tortured and died from his wounds for his opposition to, to monothelitism, which yeah. was later, he was later vindicated and, and as it was condemned at Constantinople III. So, like, this is a big deal theologically, but the context of it is so unique. And I don't want to say unique in the sense that nothing like this has ever happened, but unique compared to what we've been talking about in, in the, the heresy uh, months that we've done. It, it, and so it's difficult to pin down. It's a little more obscure just yeah just right because it because it is you know like don't you know the the life and times of donatus magnus was obscure because all of his writings have been have been presumably on purpose lost to history but this is different right this, this is more like it seems like something that just was kind of obscure right like it just seems like something that it's it's a little bit tougher to wrap your head around it's a little bit more nuanced and specific than something like Nestorianism or Pelagianism. Um, it's a little bit more insider baseball, right, than, than some of the debates we've seen. Hmm. So I think that a lot of that has to, has to do with why it can be so difficult to pin down a storyline, right. right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's almost more like a a theme that comes through than like one conversation that we can trace. Yeah, that makes sense. Through you know books and councils and letters, the way we can with with like Arianism or whatever. Right. Um, I, I like. I, I don't know how how much that how how much that like bears out. You know, like I'll let the experts <laughs> like figure that out. But right. like it, that's what it seems like looking at it from our position at least yeah and i i i found it funny that you sort of maybe not funny but ironic that you brought up that piece about maximus because that was basically how i was going to close out this episode was just by bringing up the fact that he was put on trial and then exiled in this conversation like i i knew who maximus the confessor was i have one of his books on my shelf but i had never really read uh, all that greatly on like his life and like the backstory um, I also wasn't all that familiar with monothelitism, so it's it's interesting to me that like his refusal to accept this doctrine or this teaching caught him to caused him to be brought to the imperial capital in Constantinople, um, basically to be tried as a heretic, um, because monothelitism was gaining some sort of favor at least with the emperor and the patriarch, who we're going to talk about on Friday. Um, so Maximus stood behind his teaching about there being two wills. Um, and basically was sent into exile for four years. Um, and it was during his trial, he was interestingly accused of aiding some of the Muslim conquests in Egypt and North Africa, um, which he basically rejected as being slander. So, um, again, getting into some politics there. But in 662 AD, Maximus was placed on trial again and was once more convicted of heresy. And so following the trial, Maximus was tortured and he had his tongue cut out. Basically, his, his, his tongue is removed so that he could no longer speak his quote-unquote rebellion. Um, he also had his right hand cut off so that he could write no more letters. Um, so, it, you know, pretty significant things to have happen to somebody. Um, and so he, he was exiled to a, a region of modern-day Georgia, um, and it was here that he very soon after died of his injuries. Basically, having his hand and tongue cut out probably led to some sort of infections or, or whatever. Um, but just a very interesting, I guess, caveat in this whole teaching. And again, I think playing into some of the politics of it. Because as we're saying, this wasn't just some heresy. This was a... a even, even though you sort of like at, at the beginning said that like you didn't necessarily want to take the... the, the the stance that this had something to do with power. Um, I think that there is something deeper to that, that, you know, our famous saying is that deserves a whole episode maybe. Um, But uh, when politics and theology sort of come together and and intertwine, uh, things happen. People are condemned as heretics. They have, you know, body parts removed and cut off. Um, Crazy things happen. So I, I don't want to say that they're, wasn't something deeper to this. I mean, there probably was. We just, we can only infer, I guess, without, you know, hearing the inner conversations between the emperor and the patriarch. But um, I don't know. All that to say, we've already said this was denounced as a heresy. This was uh, rejected by the Third Council of of Constantinople. Um, So, yeah, I don't don't know if there's anything else we want to say as we wrap up. I don't think so. I think I mean I think we've covered as much as as much as, as much as we can we are going to be able to. <laughs> right. Okay. 
Cool. Well, I mean, I, I hope that this was enjoyable. Again, I, I enjoyed looking into this heresy. I enjoyed sort of studying the history, the, the backdrop to uh, its development, its rise, and then its, you know, demise too. Um, so I guess, yeah, thank you, Lucas. I, I really appreciated the things that you had to say here. And thank you, dear listeners, for listening to this episode and all episodes of the Doxology podcast. Uh, really appreciate the support that you've been giving us during this month. Uh, you know, you guys are, are, are checking out um, all of our heresy episodes, obviously not our own heresy, but just as we as we evaluate heresy from church history, uh, we, we appreciate your support. So if you want to connect with us, please hit us up only on Twitter right now because Lucas and I are not on Instagram. Thus, our Instagram is not active. So uh, you can find us on Twitter at Doxology Podcast. You can also email us at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we welcome feedback, questions, episode ideas, whatever you want to give us. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, peace. See ya.